Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for December 10th, 2021. I'm Joyla Clare. We have a very full show for you today. With us is award-winning journalist and author Spencer Ackerman. He had just graduated from Rutgers University when the attacks on 9-11 occurred. He began his journalism career focused on national security with the New Republic in 2002, and then went on to write for Wired, The Guardian, and The Daily Beast. He won a 2012 National Magazine Award for his reporting on biased FBI training and a 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service with Glenn Greenwald, Ewan McCaskill, Laura Poitras, and others at The Guardian for reporting on revelations of widespread secret surveillance by the National Security Agency based on the Edward Snowden revelations. His book, co-written with Malcolm Nance, The Plot to Hack America, How Putin's Cyber Spies and WikiLeaks Tried to Steal the 2016 Election, was published in 2016. His recent book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, was published by Viking in August 2021. We spoke with him on December 3rd, 2021. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Spencer Ackerman. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Joy. Spencer, you begin your book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, with a quote from James Madison, which is uncannily pertinent to our current situation. Would you please read it? Sure. The quote goes like this. It's from 1795. It's from the Federalist Papers. This is Madison sort of giving of what will pass for the better part of the 19th century, and of course the 18th century at the end of it, of an understanding of how the the founding generation saw the relationship between foreign wars and American democracy. And the quote goes like this. The same malignant aspect in republicanism may be traced in the inequality of fortunes and the opportunities of fraud growing out of the state of war, and in the degeneracy of manners and of morals engendered by both. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. Thank you for that. Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump is, among other things, a meticulously researched history of the politics and events of the past 20 years now. You bring full circle the attitudes and approaches of the George W. Bush-Obama administrations to the current Biden administration by noting that Donald Trump understood within a year of 9-11 something about the war on terror that they did not, what you call the 9-11 era's grotesque subtext. And I'm partially quoting you here, the perception of non-whites as marauders, even as conquerors from hostile civilization was its engine. You go on to write, His problem was that the psychosis he encouraged had revealed not the might of America, but its weakness. The forever war brought only the pain and humiliation of attaining neither peace nor victory. That's the end of quoting that. I am struck 
by the pathology on display in our Congress, with some members exhibiting the most blatant Islamophobia and racism to the cheers of a disturbing number of our fellow citizens. Because there is far too much information in your book to cover in our time together, I thought it would be useful to our listeners to focus on some of the aspects you report on that reflect most directly on events of the past few years. And let's begin with Islamophobia. Would you please remind our listeners about how 9-11 was characterized in that regard? Sure. So 20 years ago, the aftermath of 9-11 was no less profound in its repressive characteristics in the United States as it was overseas. There's kind of a gauzy media narrative that arose at the time and has persisted in memory the further we get away from 9-11, which is that after 9-11, we were united as a country, we stood together, and we rejected the false and racist choice of blaming Muslims, particularly in the United States, for the acts of 9-11. And we cohered in a country and we kind of stood together. And that's always been false. In cities like New York, where I'm from, the NYPD became something more like a secret police, where it actually took senior personnel from the CIA and started investigating Muslim communities, not for the occurrence of any crime, but for a deep police penetration of what Muslim communities and prominent figures within them were thinking, what their normal economic and political activity was. Other aspects were no less vicious. The FBI, along with the precursor to ICE, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, conducted mass roundups in areas of the country where there were large Muslim communities, New York, Michigan, the northern Virginia suburbs of D.C., to the point where one person I recall and write about in the book who came out of indefinite detention which the FBI engendered through misusing something called the material witness statute in Brooklyn Federal Prison by saying, who is this Kafka everyone's talking about? We saw after 9-11 the way in which Islamophobia would be mainstreamed and would be sustained and would be considered respectable all because of one speech that George W. Bush gave, an eloquent speech, an an important one, where he urged Americans not to blame Islam for the attacks. But what went far less understood and appreciated, not just at the time, but now especially, is the way in which he governed as if America was at war with Islam. American Muslims of the past 20 years will recite chapter and verse litanies of the ways in which their civil rights have been repeatedly violated through this era, how socially they lived in fear of vigilante attacks from their neighbors. We're talking on Friday. On Thursday, the Center for American-Islamic Relations put out some surveillance footage of an apparent incendiary device being thrown at a mosque. This sort of thing very often is gone underreported and underappreciated underappreciated because what's at stake with Islamophobia after 9-11 is something that impacts everyone's freedom 
in America because the apparatus of the war on terror, its expanded surveillance functions, its expanded police powers, its transmogrification of immigration into a threat that requires security responses, including carceral ones, is one that spreads far beyond Islamophobia. It, it spreads far beyond just the Muslim American communities. I think one of the, the most apt ways of understanding what was at stake with Islamophobia is the conspiracy theory known as birtherism that held that Barack Obama, the country's first black president, was not in fact an American citizen, was instead a foreign-born Muslim, particularly a Kenyan Muslim. Now, the anti-black racism of birtherism is so loud that it kind of shouts out the rest of what's at work with that conspiracy theory, because the rest of what's at work in that conspiracy theory is how he is considered a threat, not just because he is black, but because he is purported to be a foreign Muslim, that he is not focusing on who this conspiracy theory was aimed at. It was aimed at telling people that Obama and his coalition are not, in fact, your political opponents. They're your enemies that by the logic of the world that we have lived in since 9-11, and that is to say the response that American elites took by launching the ill-conceived and futile war on terror, that makes people like the way they described falsely Obama the enemies of the American people. And this sort of thing occurs throughout American history. It speaks to a resurgence of nativism, something that has existed throughout American history and gave it a veneer of patriotic emergency, which operated as a way to seize power and expand its targeting list, so to speak, far beyond the American Muslim community. That obviously would not excuse it even if it did not target more people outside the Muslim community, it would still be every bit as noxious if it simply focused on the Muslim community. I don't mean to be implying otherwise remotely. What I mean to be saying is that we can directly see with the apparatus the war on terror constructed against American Muslims as against foreign Muslims with all of the cultural, political, and journalistic justification that went along with that, from a solidaristic sense, that mechanism is agnostic about who its targets are and can be expanded and manipulated at will. And we saw that in the summer of 2020 when the Trump administration declared that supporters of Black Lives Matter, people demonstrating for black liberation against institutionalized police racism, and also who stand against fascism, were in fact, as he called them, terrorists. And this wasn't just a rhetorical choice. He authorized the FBI local police partnerships known as Joint Terrorism Task Forces to target the protests. He sent drones and other surveillance aircraft owned by the Department of Homeland Security over 15 cities in the United States. And he allowed for minimally identified Justice Department and DHS personnel to treat protesters in Portland with tactics like shoving them into unmarked vans for detention visits. So what the war on terror does is it starts 
with institutionalizing Islamophobia. And then that is an incredibly flexible tool to apply the same sort of repressive critique, given the amount of time that the war sprawls out for, disastrously so, against a whole variety of other domestic political entities. And I want to clarify for our listeners that when we say Islamophobia, that is different from simple racism against people who are Muslims. This incorporates the belief system that Islamists have the intention of taking over the government of the United States and destroying our civilization. And it brings up the question of who is actually a quote-unquote real American, whether it's Black Lives Matter, oh, are they real Americans? Or the people who follow the Muslim religion in America, oh, they're not the, they're not the you know, the Americans that we, we think should have full rights. It also brings up this fear of Sharia law, even as we're experiencing here in the United States, more vocal calls for Bible-based laws and enforcement. Michael Flynn recently was calling for one religion in the U.S., and he meant Christians and probably his brand of Christians. And my own senator cites his faith for his reason not to support full rights for women to decide what happens to their bodies. Anyway, that's a tangent. But let's pursue what you were saying about this designation of people as terrorists in the United States. And another thing that evolved that just seems kind of normal now is immigration as a national security threat. Talk about that, please, Spencer Ackerman. This was a tremendous development in recent American history. What it was was after 9-11, you had these long-standing right-wing desires to militarize the immigration process, to make it harder for people under their breath, meaning non-white people, to immigrate to America. And the war on terror, given that 9-11 was launched by people who were able to come in the country legally, the overwhelming majority of the attackers coming from the U.S. ally Saudi Arabia, that this is a tremendous opportunity to transform immigration in both public policy and in the public eye from a mechanism to produce more Americans into a process that threatens those Americans who are already here. And there have been a variety of ways throughout American history that the institutional placement of immigration enforcement reflects how we think about migration. It used to be in the Commerce Department and Treasury, showing that there was a time in which this was primarily understood from an economic perspective, which is to say the exploitation of cheap labor. Later, it became a function of the Justice Department, showing that this was viewed through the prism of a judicial system, through a prism of a kind of rules-based, law-based civilian order through which this process, once applied fulsomely, would allow people into the United States and keep out those that it was shown through that process to be legitimately dangerous. Now, since 9-11, really since 2003, it has become inside this new creation, a kind of quintessential creation of the war on terror, the Department of Homeland Security, which is this 
weird Frankenstein's monster of a bureaucratic agency that took all of these potentially security relevant functions across the government dealing with domestic security and sort of threw them together in a kind of blender. And one of the creations that emerges from this is the immigration enforcement functions that we currently have in the United States, which is to say ICE and the CBP, Customs and Border Protection. So the significance of this is that now immigration occurs within a counterterrorism context. So those who enforce both border and internal immigration considerations start treating the people that they are aimed at as if those people are terrorists until proven otherwise. They have the funding and they have the kidding out, the surveillance tools and increased personal protection tools, weapons, to allow them to do that. And it becomes increasingly normalized for that distinction between immigration and counterterrorism to blur to the point where the Department of Homeland Security, by the time of the Obama administration, starts purchasing drones, not armed drones, surveillance drones, but drones in bulk. So what starts out as a state-determined market for high-level national security tools for the war zones eventually becomes a state-determined market for proliferating those same methods here at home. The Department of Homeland Security is also responsible for militarizing law enforcement in really important ways. For instance, it gives out something like a billion and a half dollars every year in counterterrorism grants to law enforcement shops around the country that apply for them, and they face minimal requirements legally to have to use this stuff for actual counterterrorism. So those are just some ways in which the longstanding right-wing antipathy to immigration after the war on terror really intensified and transformed a lot of the security architecture in the country. You're mentioning about the drones, and we will get into the impacts of that on just non-judicial killings, I think is the euphemism for that. But in the headlines today, we're recording this interview on December 3rd, 2021. A couple of headlines. U.S. rejects calls for regulating or banning killer robots. That is from The Guardian today, also from The Guardian. The rise of the killer robots and the two women fighting back, Nobel Peace Prize winners for their work banning landmines. But anyway, Spencer, throughout the book, you talk about the security state and how it kind of like took over. You were talking about the Frankenstein aspect of the Department of Health uh, Homeland Security. I was was going to Health and Human Services. (laughs) What a joke that is. So the security state is what you call it. But the conspiracy theorists of the the last few years talk about the deep state. And I wonder if there is a relationship that you see between those two things. How do you mean? Well, it kept resonating with me every time I saw you allude to the security state. And over the past few years, the apprehensions that a certain percentage of the U.S. population has, oh, not only QAnon conspiracists, but people who are sincerely concerned about democracy as they see it. And they seem to see that there is this entity called the deep state, which in fact 
could be prone to invasion by uh, stealth Islamists, for example. And I wondered myself, are they aware at some level that there is this security state that is beyond control of any one administration? It seems to like go from administration to administration independent of whoever's in charge. Yeah. So the way to conceive of this is that there is a distinct class in the country. It's something that has its own, and it's internally varied, institutional culture. It sees itself as a protectorate class within the United States and something of a repository of an authentic Americanism that is willing to, as it sees it, defend the founding principles of the United States from enemies foreign and domestic, which is to say that we're talking about the military, the intelligence services, federal law enforcement, the agencies that now comprise the Department of Homeland Security, and depending on the ways in which sort of culturally this has developed over the last, in particular, 20 years, you see some of that self-identified within police in this country as well. Basically, this is to say that over the course of several decades, the typical understanding of when this really starts in earnest is 1947, when the Truman administration creates the National Security Act and gets Congress to pass that, what Dwight Eisenhower would ultimately call the military-industrial complex, that this is essentially what state capitalism in the United States looks like. It looks like the defense industry with all of its important sub-adjuncts into intelligence. We don't really have good vocabulary in mainstream political discourse for understanding this phenomena, because most of mainstream political discourse isn't interested in this and is interested in kind of looking away from it, is interested in understanding politics as what happens on Tuesdays in November every couple of years and then takes place in the White House in Capitol Hill. Rather, it is important to understand that a significant force in American public life is the constellation of security agencies that I think is appropriate to understand as the security state. It is a state apparatus interested in security, and it has, I think it's fair to say, minimal constraint posed by American democratic life, that small d Democrat, basically, which is to say that it is answerable to Congress but not really meaningfully constrained by it. And that's already on top of, I think, what is also fair to say, a fairly unrepresentative Congress. If you look at Congress and the Senate, who are they more receptive to, their voters or their donors? So we see with the deep state a lot of continuities of how, in fact, undemocratic American life is, which, you know, America tells both itself and the world that it is functionally synonymous with democracy. It is very easy in such an environment to persuade people that really what this is, is a cabal inside the security services that is, and this is the right-wing formulation of this, already controlled by your political adversaries. And you understand your political adversaries, as someone like Steve Bannon does, as someone like Donald Trump does, as your enemies, people for whom you combat, you don't contend with. And so that's really the kind of origins of how the right understands the deep state. It's basically a way of saying the things that I don't get 
out of my time in government advancing my agenda have been thwarted internally by this enterprise. The right doesn't just mean this as the security functions of the state. They'll mean that when they need to explain away why they're being investigated for like rampant um, criminal exposure. It is ludicrous for someone like Mike Flynn to portray himself as the enemy of the deep state. This is someone who was a three-star general who literally ran an intelligence agency who was very, very deeply steeped in the security state. So to understand him as some kind of opponent of it really speaks to both the absurdity of the way the right portrays this thing it calls the deep state, and also the ways in which doing so allows the actual security state a free pass on its role within American life, no less than the way liberals kind of deny that any of this sort of thing is happening does. One of the parallels that you draw in your book, Spencer Ackerman, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, you point out at the very beginning that the security state, members of the security state, actually tried to warn the George W. Bush administration at least a month before the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and Flight 93 happened on 9-11 that I think they put it, bin Laden intended Determined to strike in U.S. Thank you. Yes. And then the parallel more recently that the intelligence services tried to warn former President Trump months before the COVID pandemic reached the United States and became, well, we are now, we have suffered the greatest number and the greatest percentage of deaths of any country in the world to this. All right. So both of these individuals either didn't get the message or ignored them. What comments do you have to say about those parallels? One aspect of the security state that sees it very often in clash with right-wing administrations is the way that its technocracy and its presentation of itself as independent sources of data and sources of analyses become viewed as threats to the authority of that right-wing administration. You saw this phenomenon characterized in many ways, the Trump presidency in office. You also saw ways earlier that this same phenomena plays out. In the Bush administration, there was tremendous antipathy amongst loyalists to the State Department, institutional military, and CIA analysis on the merits and the wisdom of invading Iraq. Now, a tremendous amount of the security state during this time acquiesced to the Bush administration in its hunt for a pretext to invade Iraq. That should never be overlooked because that also tells you a lot about how the security state will act in a circumstance of crisis. It will not be what it portrayed itself as during the Trump administration, which is this vanguard, this redoubt of constitutional protection. It will do what it feels is in its interest. And sometimes it will feel its interests lie in going along with an invasion of Iraq that will ultimately prove disastrous for both its parochial interests, 
the country's interests at large and certainly the interests of the millions of human beings who are made into refugees and the hundreds of thousands of human beings who are dead because of the Iraq war. But that antipathy during the Bush administration to those security state elements that resisted, or I shouldn't say resist, that's probably too strong a word, but like did not fulsomely embrace the wisdom of invading Iraq. And of course, that has a legacy in the Cold War when the forces around Nixon, when he was a congressman, would accuse the State Department of having allowed the communists to infiltrate and subvert American foreign policy. So this has a very, very long legacy in American life, but we really saw this kind of explode during the Trump administration in which the issue at stake was not about a programmatic question, should we or should we not invade Iraq? It was about which of these factions is going to dominate the other. And that is a very dangerous current in American life to go down and one that will not be solved, fixed, resolved, etc. because Trump is out of office. One of the things that you saw particularly toward the final months of the Trump administration is Trump placing loyalists at the top of the intelligence agencies, Rick Grinnell and then John Ratcliffe, people who are just simply not qualified to run intelligence agencies. But the ways in which the country has structured its intelligence agencies after 9-11 has led to a circumstance where it is easier than ever before to place a presidential functionary as the head of U.S. intelligence. And this is an extremely dangerous circumstance for the future of American democracy. It's going to be a forum going forward for the rights, both claims that a deep state is resisting its prerogatives, having won elections that are less and less democratic with each passing year, it seems, but also for placing loyalists within those positions of the security services, which is to say it's not interested in combating a deep state. It's interested in constructing one. One of the things that you have done in your life, Spencer, is you were awarded many different journalism awards, but one of them was a Pulitzer for your work with The Guardian and Edward Snowden's revelations. It seems to me that That was monumental, to say the least. And I wonder if you could share with our listeners some of the insights that you gained in that process. Well, I appreciate that. I think one of the the legacies of reporting on the Snowden documents is, first, I have been covering the war on terror pretty much since the start. I started out in professional journalism in 2002 after graduating from college. And when you see the documents for themselves, you get this acute appreciation for how so much of the way the government describes its intelligence operations in just deceitful and meaningfully distorted, euphemistic and other other ways. So I guess there's a long way of saying, like, you get the starkness of how the government lies about surveillance right in front of your face. 
even when reports had come out principally by the New York Times in December of 2005 about enormous, sprawling, warrantless surveillance, the response at the time, because no documents had emerged, was that this was a misunderstanding of a targeted program that the, the NSA and the Bush administration quickly labeled for the public the terrorist surveillance program, because that sounds a lot better than bulk surveillance on everyone's devices and everyone's accounts. And you did not have the kind of broad understanding of the ways in which this surveillance operated. When I got to see the Snowden documents, you really saw how this was not remotely a targeted process, that any targeting that occurs happens long after as many people's communications have been collected and analyzed as possible. So any targeting is very downstream of the ways in which this panopticon actually functions. The depth of it is really quite amazing. And you also saw in some of those documents the ways in which intelligence operatives having already spent their careers out of public view, speaking just to themselves and speaking on as they see it, task and target, communicate about the people they place under surveillance. And one of the, the very arresting things that I mean by this is when the NSA would be conducting presentations for about like how to go about using the tools that they have for surveillance, they would type in placeholder names to kind of show what they're talking about. And among the placeholder names would be things like Mohammed Raghead at Yahoo.com. So pardon my language for that, but that's what they said. So you really see how from the start, this is an enterprise that in practice quickly accommodates institutional racism and accordingly reflects institutional racism. You finally saw once the, the documents were disclosed the ways in which both the security state and bipartisan currents within the Congress and the White House, in this case it was Obama's White House, you would see versions of this under Donald Trump when they retain a power called FISA Section 702, work to make sure that as little of that surveillance ceases to exist as possible, that the overwhelming amount of public outrage created by the Snowden leaks ends up leading to very little institutional change that functionally constrains that surveillance. Finally, I would say, and this is also greatly aided with the work of people like Shoshana Zuboff, the Harvard Business School professor emerita who coined the term surveillance capitalism in a brilliant book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, how inextricable surveillance is from the 21st century economy, that the tools that conduct surveillance are not just government tools to the point where the commodification of data by the large internet companies that started happening shortly before 9-11 has yielded a capitalist surveillance panopticon that acts as the cost of doing business in the 21st century something that's fully extractive, you create, each of us creates a ton of data for these companies, and we own none of it. It only has economic value in aggregate, and you who produce it get nothing from it. 
it got to the point, you could see this in the surveillance documents that Snowden leaked as well, that eventually the NSA didn't have to build much of this infrastructure at all. All it had to do was piggyback on it. All it had to do was get access to the tremendous amounts of incredibly revealing data that the internet giants, especially the social media giants, already have on their servers. That is a program the NSA operates called PRISM. I'm glad you mentioned that New York Times article. And I want to remind listeners that the Times withheld that story of the Bush administration's illegal bulk data collection at his administration's request till after the 2004 presidential elections. Had they published it when they first had it before that election, things might have taken a very different course. Please talk about the culpability of mainstream media in the war on terror then, and how do you see it now? I want to start off by saying I do not consider myself exempt from this phenomenon. I have produced bad journalism that ultimately served the interests of the war on terror as much as I have produced good journalism that challenged the prerogatives of the war on terror. So I don't want anything that follows to be misconstrued as me saying I am the only good journalist and all the other journalists are terrible, because that's just not the case at all. The problem was that mainstream American journalism adopted the prerogatives of the war on terror, that it identified with those conducting the war on terror, not those who are on the receiving end of the war on terror. There are a ton of different tributaries that took, but that was fundamentally the problem, that American journalism enlisted in the war on terror as an enterprise. It did not start out by challenging it. It very frequently throughout the course of the war on terror challenged it in tactical and sometimes operational ways, challenged the way a war was going. It certainly didn't stop reporting on all of the ways that the Afghanistan war was a disaster like this, the the Iraq war was a disaster like that. But from a day-to-day coverage perspective, and I saw this quite a lot throughout the course of my career, the benefit of the doubt was extended to those Americans who were carrying out the war on terror and things like the burdens of suspicion on people who said that the U.S. just bombed me and none of us were, were terrorists. That was always placed on, on the people who experienced the bombing, who survived it or who didn't. The war on terror was a force that allowed American journalism to kind of prove its allegiance to the country, which is a really dangerous thing. As long as I've been a reporter, there have been people who talk about with greater and, and less insight about how American journalists are propagandists, are tools of an enemy, and so forth. And the enterprise itself wanted, after 9-11, to enlist in this feeling of patriotic fervor in the face of a trauma borne by an atrocity like 9-11. And accordingly, that shaped the ways in which it would cover all aspects of the wars, and also not cover aspects of the war. We know vastly less 
about what the war on terror really truly was, then we know what it was because of an enormous apparatus of classification and secrecy that's kept a tremendous amount of the war, even today, still out of public view. Mainstream journalism has tended to accommodate that instead of challenging it. Its challenges have been real at times. There have been some tremendous, absolutely incredible, groundbreaking, legendary, classic journalism produced by American journalists that really do challenge the war on terror very thoroughly and in critical ways. But that's been the exception. The rule is something that looks more like American journalists recapitulating the perspectives that the government wants portrayed. That's an enormous failure. It's one that we should recognize institutionally as we teach and mentor journalists. I know we don't actually do that in this country. I can tell you a whole lot about that. But as we seek to reckon with what the war on terror has been and continues to be these last 20 years, American journalism needs to come to terms with the ways that it was complicit in this enterprise, rather than posing the challenge to the government that, at its core, the profession likes to tell itself makes up its identity. Let's get back to the parallels in the last few years. I had not been aware of William Barr's role as an attorney with Verizon in terms of how the Patriot Act in its various permutations has evolved. And of course, his role as the Attorney General of the United States in the last few years of the Trump administration. Spencer Ackerman, would you please first talk about William Barr's role as the Verizon attorney, and then we'll get to his role in the bringing the war on terror home. It's important to understand that the telecommunications companies for many, many decades are the critical adjunct of U.S. surveillance. The federal government doesn't own the telecommunications infrastructure in the United States. So it has to work with private companies that do in order to conduct this surveillance. Verizon was kind of new after 9-11. It takes several years for it to eventually acquire international calling as a partner. Accordingly, a whole lot, even today, going back to what I had just said, remains out of view about what its specific role in post-9-11 NSA surveillance has been. Nevertheless, Barr, who as George H.W. Bush's attorney general, already kind of beta tested through the Drug Enforcement Agency, bulk domestic phone metadata collection, he, after 9-11, testifies to Congress about functionally why the Fourth Amendment is quaint, why the trouble with the Patriot Act and other post-9-11 surveillance isn't that it's too permissive, it's that it's too much of a constraint around needed surveillance activities to find terrorists inside the United States, that he aligns himself even beyond what the Bush administration is willing to formally contend. He aligns himself with what, in fact, the Bush administration is doing in practice outside of public view, which is violating the Fourth Amendment at scale, at an unimaginable scale. Barr's history in this regard 
helps us contextualize how he will operate as attorney general, help us understand how he will operate as attorney general. He will operate lawlessly because he views there to be a sufficient domestic security threat to justify that lawlessness and sell it politically. That was most certainly what he did throughout his time atop the Trump Justice Department. This is also why it's important, you know, we were talking earlier about the construction of the immigration counterterrorism apparatus, to look at the figures who are part of that operation, what they go on to do. The chief figure at the time after 9-11 in the Justice Department for immigration issues was an aide to then Attorney General John Ashcroft, who your viewers might remember because of his alliance with Trump later on, Chris Kobach, the guy who will go on to run Trump's voter suppression commission and short-lived one and so forth. And someone like Kobach cuts his teeth politically during the early stages of the war on terror, like so many, and eventually that empowerment that the war on terror provides will bear fruit, will ultimately show itself in the fulsomeness of time as this opportunity for all of this repressive politics. And then William Barr's culture war assertions as the attorney general in which he declines to investigate white supremacist extremism, but leaps at the opportunity to investigate and uh, create a task force against Antifa. I refuse to say Antifa because that sounds like a foreign word. Antifa, the anti-fascist movement. So again, it's important to understand from the start who the war on terror exempts. And the best way we can understand that is by looking at as close an analog as we're ever going to get, which is in 1995, a white supremacist militant named Timothy McVeigh commits what at the time is the deadliest act of terror in U.S. history, the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City that killed 168 people, including 19 children. It could not be more clear who the war on terror is aimed at and who it's not aimed at than by looking at what a pretty much, if not in scale, in kind activity occurred in 1995. There is a political and journalistic reluctance to call McVeigh a white supremacist, look at his own words and his own history of white supremacist militancy, to pathologize him as someone who is, this is, these are actual stories from the time. The Washington Post called him the ordinary boy, who had, this is a 27-year-old man, who had lived through the experience of divorce. My parents were never married. I didn't bomb anyone because of that. Like, that's just nonsense, right? What it adds up to is an atmosphere politically in which the infrastructure of white supremacy in this country is given a complete pass. It is not viewed as an urgent security threat. In fact, very reasonable beliefs about the dangers of overreach and about responding to political problems with security solutions are given a tremendous amount of sympathy because, in this case, the person performing those acts is white and the heritage he claims for his political persona stems from 
the founding of the nation, that it claims to be restoring the most important kind of Americanness there is. It doesn't see itself as a revolutionary movement. It sees itself as a restorative movement. It calls its soldiers patriots. That tendency in American political life that we see on April 19th, 1995, is extremely strong, extremely rooted, and we will never see it applied for 9-11. If anything really demonstrates the structural racism of the war on terror, as well as American national security broadly, but really we're talking about the war on terror here specifically, it's that. It's that Oklahoma City is not terrorism, not treated in the same ways that non-white, and in this case Islamic terrorism, actually is. Our recent guest, uh, Professor Kathleen Bellew, documents that before they realized that Timothy McVeigh was the perpetrator, the press was speculating immediately that it must be an act of Muslim terrorism. They called it that, and then it changed once the actual perpetrator was found. Spencer Ackerman, we are out of time. I want to give you a final 30 seconds for last words to our listeners. Well, thank you so much, Joy. I appreciate it. I guess all I would say is 9-11 era reveals these very deep currents in American history that stretch back, I would argue, to 1619. Torture techniques that we have become very familiar with, the United States employing after 9-11, are used on the enslaved, kidnapped Africans, stolen and brought to Jamestown on the pirate ship, the White Lion, that docks in Jamestown in August 1619, we would understand the people held on those ships as being held in stress positions. These continuities are not accidental. America doesn't do what it does after 9-11 because 9-11 changes everything. It reaches for tools that it has so often reached for throughout our history. But that doesn't mean the war on terror has to go on. That doesn't mean that it's invincible. It doesn't mean that it's our fate to live in a world of perpetual war. What has happened is that the war on terror gives tremendous opportunity and accelerating purpose to the democratic emergency, small b, I mean, the emergency that American democracy finds itself in. The ways in which Americans have dealt with challenges like that in the past is by organizing one another and standing against the forces of repression in order to make sure that their children have a freer future than they enjoyed. And I would just leave everyone by suggesting that this is a circumstance that we find ourselves in now, but it doesn't have to be what the future looks like either. Spencer Ackerman, thank you so much for joining us today on Forthright Radio and your decades now of work bringing the information to us that we need. Your book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, is very, very helpful to us to understanding all of this. Well, thank you so much. You have just heard an interview with award-winning journalist and author Spencer Ackerman. His latest book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, was published by Viking in 2021. 
We spoke with him on December 3, 2021. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joyla Clare. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. You can also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. On the December 5, 2021 edition of Rhythm Running River, host Dan Roberts reached into his amazing archives of live recordings of Mendocino County poets and broadcast this poem by Kate Daugherty, An American Confession. We are grateful to be able to share it with you now. Then... Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who entered the spirit world in 2021 and whose voice and spirit live on, at least in listener-supported radio, pity the nation. An American confession regarding war. We wanted to be what we wanted to be. That was forgivable. What country, what person has not walked through their history as if in a dream, as if awake, But in the face of events and the many proofs contrary to this vision, to continually and exclusively see history through the dominant eye of the beholder? Regarding war, the Gulf of Tonkin incident of August 2nd was provoked by covert American aggression. The Gulf of Tonkin incident of August 4th never happened. The airstrip in Grenada was built for tourism, not the transportation of Russian supplies for Cuba. No Iraqis dumped Kuwaiti infants out of the incubators onto hospital floors. Niger did not sell 500 tons of uranium to Iraq. Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction. Yet in the wink of someone's eye, we blinked and there was war. What would it take if we desired the truth be broadcast as many times as were the lies over the course of 10, 25, 50 years? How would these established, quote, historical, quote, facts be publicly corrected? Do not the American people have the right to call to trial anyone suspected of willful deceit and strategizing America into war, invasion, intervention with another country? Or like the banks too large to fail, are their individuals too powerful to prosecute? And for our reconciliation, if American men and women in our military speak out against what they see and are asked to do, Those court-martialed and imprisoned for this witness, what is reconciliation for them and their families? For all people killed in American wars and invasions, police actions, sanctions, interventions, for all the survivors abducted, imprisoned, maimed, displaced, burned, irradiated, if they told us their stories, if they personally, publicly, told us their suffering, would we listen? Could we listen? 
a day to celebrate a wedding that exploded mid-feast and all but annihilated one extended family in the words of one child. Let the children speak. Let the survivors speak. Let their dead speak. Let the refugees speak. Let our soldiers speak. Let our dead speak. Let all the families speak. Let them speak. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silenced, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world with force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well fed. Pity the nation. Oh, pity the people who will allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty. This has been the first edition of Forthright Radio in our new time at 9 o'clock on the second and fourth Friday mornings of the month, alternating with Bob Bushensky's program, Politics, A Love Story. We hope you can join us on these Friday morning public affairs programs, and please tell a friend. Thanks for listening and supporting KZYX and Z. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.